Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Pushkin. Just a quick note here. You can listen to all of the music mentioned in this episode on our playlist, which you can find a link to in the show notes. For licensing reasons, each time a song is referenced in this episode, you'll hear this sound effect. All right. Enjoy the episode. My name is Malcolm Gladwell. Welcome to Broken Record. Today on the show, he's called The Greatest Songwriter Alive by Elton John, no less, Rufus Wainwright. The writer and performer has transformed his love of pop, cabaret, and even opera into a series of extraordinary albums. They explore his own life and the world around him, from his sexuality to his famous musical family. Rufus sat down with Bruce Headlam at Sunset Sound in Hollywood just four days after he premiered his latest opera, Hadrian, in Toronto, and just as he was preparing for a new tour. He showed up at the studio with his guitar, a beat-up Gibson acoustic, and a terrible cold. But Rufus with a cold is better than most of us healthy. Before we play his interview with Bruce, I just want you to hear Rufus playing one of his gorgeous songs at the studio's piano. Well, that was wonderful. Thank you. That's <laughs> the first thing I'll say. What did that song come out of? That song came out of, I, I was living, I was at the time I was living at the Chelsea Hotel and and I had had, you know, it's funny because I I, I went to New York earlier on uh, before my first record. You know, my dad has, had always, Loudon at the third, you know, he'd always lived in New York. And so I went down there and, uh, you know, slummed around and 
really had a terrible time. Uh, nobody got me. Um, it was at the time that uh, Jeff Buckley was 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 on the rise, and and I and I'd go to this place, Shanae's, in the Lower East Side, and I'd give I gave them my tape three times. They refused it three times. They gave it back to me three times, and uh, and just New York did not embrace me at all. And so I left. And then I ended up coming to Hollywood and and, and doing it there and, and, and making my first record. Anyways, so then I came back to New York at, with a, with having ha- made a record and, and 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 being, you know, being well known uh, and sort of the hot new guy on the block. And of course everybody loved me. Everybody wanted to have a piece of me. Everybody, you know, I was suddenly king of the city. And that's when I wrote poses. At that point, I went into my New York. I was like, I'm going to have my New York experience, and so I moved into the Chelsea and proceeded to uh, debaucherize mm-hmm. <laughs> my existence and 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 that song and and cigarettes and chocolate milk. Those two, those two came mm-hmm. out of that. Uh, are there traces of your? I mean, of course, there's traces of your mother in, in what you do, but her her infl- her musical influences in what you do. Yeah, I mean, my mother, Kate, would play piano all the time. She listened to records a lot and uh, and had in- incredibly high taste uh, for artists. I mean, she loved, of course, you know, all the great blues players like Blind Willie Johnson and she loved uh, the Rolling Stones. She loved. She, they, of course, were all obsessed with D- Dylan. They loved all the field recordings. You know, the the Harry Smith recordings, the, the, or they'd listen to you know Mahler's Fifth Symphony. I mean, they were. They, it was. It was a. It was a high end uh, music environment. So, my mother would play the Goldberg Variations every morning. Parts of them, not the, not the most complicated ones, but you know, so there was a lot of Glenn Gould and there was a lot of stuff like that. So. Um, so yeah, she she was just a fountain of musical curiosity. Okay. Did your father's songwriting influence you? Yeah, I mean, we saw, you know, my dad, I didn't see a lot of my father growing up. Uh, he was touring a lot and he, he, didn't, he and my mom didn't really get along. So I didn't see him so much. And most, but mostly when I saw him, it was in the context of, of a concert or show. So I saw him on stage. I probably related to him more as a person while watching him perform than as I did as a person <laughs> or as a father, you know, living. And that was not hard to do because he's, his work is so confessional and that's sort of really where he became who he really is. And he it was where I could get a lot of the answers to my questions concerning the family, concerning his his inner thoughts and desires and fears. And and uh, so, so going to see his shows was always... Um, a, a real education on so many levels, whether it was about songwriting or just, you know, what was going on in my life. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's not only a musical family, but you're a family that tends to, I don't know if you work out your issues, but you certainly address oh, yes. your issues yes. in song. Yes. Uh, what's that, first of all, what, where does that impulse come from? Yeah. Well, I mean, arguably, it started with my grandfather on my father's side, with Loudon Wainwright II. He was a very well-known writer for Life magazine, had a column for years called The View From Here, 
which was incredibly popular in the 60s you know and were and life magazine was you know the 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 be all and end all of of american culture so so he, and he and he would write about his kids and write about his dog and write about kennedy or write about you know his relationship to you know the moon landing or something so so it was that that's that's how that thing was set up so so in, on my father's side with my mom i think you know she got into folk music um she then and she was obviously quite talented and she came from a a a generation of singers too that i'm finding out now though they were more kind of vaudevillian but i think when she came to you know the philadelphia folk festival in in the 60s and stuff um you know and bob dylan was around and it was just it was the thing to do you know to really bare your soul and and be truthful and and uh, kind of live your life through music so so the, the, all of that kind of collided it's strange to revisit those songs now my mother's songs or my father's songs no but or? even your songs yeah. like dinner at 8 or other oh. songs you've written yeah. you know you wrote a song to your sister yeah. about your mother being sick yeah. very personal yeah i mean i i've i you know i singing my songs is kind of my day job i mean i go i have to do shows every month you know three or four shows at least just to maintain my existence um financially and then i believe me i do not uh have the luxury to kind of you know pick and choose uh what 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 to present um i i have to go with with what works and thankfully you know over over my the 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 the, the crest of my career there have been many periods that I can borrow from. And uh, so I'm constantly going in and out uh, of those worlds. And uh, and there's songs that I've, there are many songs I sing now from my first records. And yeah, so I, it's, it's not weird to me at all. Look, a good song is a good song. <laughs> and I'll just, you know, and, and an audience deserves that. <laughs> Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch Subject to credit approval, terms apply. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer? Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. 
Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's Place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash, alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the boar's nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. Tell me where In My Arms came from. Well, that came from, uh, I was living in Montreal, uh, Quebec, and, uh, you know, I had gone to McGill for two seconds. I was there for about a year, maybe maybe even a year and a half. Uh, and I and before that, I'd been in in boarding school in upstate New York in, at Millbrook School at the Millbrook School. And I, when I arrived back in Montreal, where I'd grown up previously, um, I was I was really excited to sort of dive into the heady, head or hedonistic, I should say, society that that city can offer. And and ended up at McGill and was shocked by how boring it was, <laughs> and and uh, you know uptight and uh, full of. Um, uh, truly stayed characters. Uh, I hate to say it, it really was. And, and I can say that now because I work in the classical music world now and uh, writing operas. So I, I have a deep appreciation for for musicians of that ilk. But at that time in my life, it was just not what I was looking for. I wanted to party my brains out and hang out with, um, you know, the demi moaned. So, so I, I I dropped out of McGill and uh, ended up, you know, hanging out a lot on on St. Lawrence Street and going to. There was a couple of bars there. One was called the Biff Tech, and one was called Miami. And uh, I kind of gravitated towards those two, and that was where all the street urchins hung out. And one of them was this boy whose name I I can't remember. Who uh, you know, I just had this brief very brief affair with, and he ended up sadly uh, committing suicide. Uh, and and that song was about him. Hmm. So it was, you know. How did it come about musically? Um, well, I mean, I, you know, I grew up, at that point I was living with my mom, and, you know, she, Kate McGarrigal of the McGarrigal sisters, in my opinion, uh, aside from being my mom, I, I think was also one of the greatest talents of her or, or any other generation uh, in terms of songwriting. I mean, both Kate and my Aunt Anna wrote some of the most perfect music uh, of the 70s and 80s and 90s even. And, uh, and, and Kate was very cognizant of my desire to follow in the family footsteps and, and, and do music and, and become a songwriter. So she really impressed upon me that uh, I had to, you know, gather as many experiences as, as possible. I 
She told me explicitly to never get a job. <laughs> she said, don't ever get a job. And she she ended up giving me an allowance, which was not a lot. It was like it was like $10 a week, <laughs> yeah. which believe it or not, in those days you could actually, li- I mean, if I was li- if you were living with your parents, you could actually do quite well on $10 a week. So I was in that, I was allowed to be in that mode and uh, at a very young age. And even though at times I'm sure my mother was horrified by by what I was going through and and what I was coming into contact with, I think she always knew deep down that it was a sort of artistic pursuit and that it was as, and that as a a songwriter, it's it's kind of where I had to go. Mm -hmm. Do you write every day? Did you write every day then? Um, At that point in my life, I was completely ravenous uh, with musical hunger (laughs) and, uh, and would write every day and sometimes spend, you know, five or six hours at the piano just just losing myself in it, and uh, and that then that then that had started earlier in boarding school, uh, where I would just there was a chapel in our school, and I would go there for for a long time. I spent a lot of time in church, <laughs> <laughs> not praying, but but well, sort of praying in a way. So yeah, no, I worked a lot, and uh, yeah, which you have to do. <laughs> was it always at the piano in those days? Mostly at the piano, though. Though I I incorporated the car, guitar pretty early on because one of the main things that I knew intrinsically was that I had to perform as much as possible in front of an audience, and not everybody had a piano, so so a guitar was a much easier way to kind of move your product along. So I uh, I started writing songs on the guitar. Mm-hmm. Did the did the melody come with the lyric in many, they many would, cases? In most, in the best cases, it, it happened simultaneously, and then you know the melody often really completes itself uh, holistically without you know much help. But and then you have to kind of grind away at the lyrics uh, afterwards uh, to kind of keep up. So yeah, words are much harder than than music. Uh, you say the melody completes itself, but you are known for you have much longer melodies yeah, yeah. than most pop songs. Yeah, yeah. Um, where does that come from? Where does the well? A lot of that comes from my love of opera. Um, I, at the age of thirteen, was well. At the age of twelve, I was a normal kid, vaguely normal. Uh, but then at thirteen, I, I um, came into contact with this recording of Verdi's Requiem with Leontine Price and UC Burling and. And after a two-hour stint of listening to that from top to bottom, I was utterly, tra- you know, changed and 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 turned into this seventy-five-year-old opera queen <laughs> in front of my horrified parents' faces. And uh, and so I, uh, but I, I, and though I, and it's interesting because you know now I, my operas are produced, and and you know we just premiered Hadrian and with the COC in Toronto and. Which was a big, great success, and I have, and that's my second opera. So it's it's now a big part of my life. But I knew back then, even that that though you know whether I wrote one or not, I, I kind of knew I'd never be an opera singer. Um, but but whether I composed one or not, I definitely had the sense that there were so many interesting tricks and 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 uh, sensibilities and structures in in arias that uh, I could then incorporate into my own popular material, mm-hmm. and that and that and, and that I'd sort of discovered this. This um, treasure trove or Aladdin's cave that uh, that nobody else knew about, and that I could then you know translate, and and that was I was right in that case. I mean, you know, nobody once I hit really hit the scene officially, you know, in Los Angeles uh, with my first album, 
people really had never heard anything quite like what I'd created. Um, I don't give opera the full credit necessarily, but opera was a big component mm -hmm. of that. Were there times you were literally translating something you'd heard in an opera to a pop song, or was it just more the, I, the I kind of lines? I ripped a couple of things a few times, but um, I think it was more just the structure of, of, of a song where where there should be a kind of um, climax that occurs uh, and then, you know, a, a denouement after that. You know, there's a lot, of, a lot of my bridges kind of go into these very unusual places. And, and uh, yeah, it was more that sensibility of, of, of really the, 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 the aria or the, or the song dominating the listener and, and making them follow them and not the other way around. You know, it was never kind of background music. Do you separate writing melodies in your mind when you're writing opera? I don't want to yeah. jump too far ahead. Uh, but there's certainly, uh, uh, I'm thinking of maybe the first aria in your first opera in Prima yes. Donna. Yeah, yeah. That could very much be a pop song yes. that you wrote. Before you heard the Requiem, w was there a pop song that, that kind of crystallized yeah. it for you? Yeah, I was, I mean, I, what I also like to point out is that before opera, um, I was heavily into pop music, and it was a glorious period. You know, from my from about the age of seven until thirteen, it was you know the Arrhythmics, Cyndi Lauper, Prince, Tina Turner. Uh, I was really into the Thompson Twins, Blondie, you know, and stuff. So you know, once in the mid '80s, when it started to get a little more. Or the late '80s, you know, around around, you know, I don't want to, I don't, I don't like to put down people, but you know, like Huey Lewis in the news, which you know, I think in retrospect, you kind of look at their stuff and you're like, it was kind of amazing, but it was, it, it got a little heterosex, it just got a little heteronormative <laughs> at a certain <laughs> point for me, especially, right. and then and then the whole grunge thing happened, which was simultaneous to my opera phase, and I think oddly enough, you know, the opera. My opera, my love for opera was a similar kind of um, desire that, that a lot of kids had when they got into Kurt Cobain and stuff. It was this desire for, you know, a, a certain darkness that, uh, that the world needed at that point. Mm -hmm. And you said personally you were, you were around 14 at that point. Yeah. You'd come out. Well, I'd come out to myself. I mean, I, I, hadn't, mm -hmm. I hadn't come out to anyone officially, but I knew I was gay. I was, I was, I was engaged in, you know. Um, sexual um, things. Uh, I was all, and AIDS was was decimating, you know, the world around me, and uh, I had to go to boarding school at that point. <laughs> <laughs> so, what was the appeal of opera at that particular point? Beyond beyond the, yeah. the music that you loved, that yeah. you talked about the well, darkness. Well, it was. And the I drama. mean, it was. It really spoke to the um, darkness that 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 was surrounding me, and. Uh, you know, I, I I had sex first when I was around thirteen, uh, around that time, and um, that I that I started you know listening to opera, and I thought for a good ten years that I was going to die, and, and and honestly, and 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 in retrospect, there was a very good chance that could have happened. You know, I you know every pimple, every you know scrape suddenly was carposis sarcoma. You know, it was this you know real trauma that opera 
thrives off of, you know? <laughs> and so I, I got a lot of solace from that and a lot of um, answers, you know, in terms of, you know, the bigger questions and, you know, and what really matters and, you know, the power of love and the power of forgiveness and the power of transcendence, which opera always does. Um, so, so I do think also that there are these opera gods and there's this kind of spiritual realm where opera resides and that those ghosts kind of chose me as well. Like there was, it was like the art form came to me and was like, we want you to, uh, do our bidding <laughs> in a very spooky kind of way. Cause I've, I've, I've had experiences like that with opera since then where it's very, um, very, there's a supernatural quality. Uh, to that music that uh, that I wholly believe in, you know, I like like people believe in Jesus Christ or you know stuff like that. I, I believe in opera in that way. Do you believe that of other music? Have there been other kinds of music or no. songs that have changed the no, way maybe you've no. written? No, I mean, I I I, I, I view all other music as as kind of. Um, as beautiful and fascinating and 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 magical, but not not opera is 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 like a religion for me. That that you know it helped me at that point. It also helped me greatly down the line when I was struggling with drugs and alcohol, and then it also helped me when my mother was dying, and and I'm sure it'll help me you know in future. Mm-hmm. Disasters. <laughs> <laughs> if there's any that will help you get through this interview, you know, you just feel, <laughs> feel free to put it on. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to Nerd Wallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before Nerd Wallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers... Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, 
Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's Place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash, alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash the Boar's Nest. Uh, that's a song sort of addressed to my daughter, Viva. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, I think it's going to make it on the new record. And she's we'll how see. old now? She's uh, seven and a half. Mm-hmm. There's a new there's a there's a requirement in my family at this point with, with both Viva and Yorn, my husband, who 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 basically have stated that the rule is I have to have one song about them on each record. <laughs> so it's uh, it's uh, it's I, I it's my quota kind of. <laughs> mm-hmm. Do you do more than one? Uh, well, I've written about three three songs about Viva and, and three about him. Okay. Uh, regardless, but um, was Respectable Dive about him? That, that that yes, respectable dive was about our relationship for sure, but uh, but yeah, but this this latest one is is it's a very it's a short little ditty that, mm-hmm. uh, about about Viva so um, or, de- or, or or directed towards Viva. Okay, beyond the contractual requirement yes. you have in your family, yes, to write about yeah, uh, uh, what what prompted the song? Well, you know, I just wanted to write a little something. You know, you know, Viva was born under very um, unusual circumstances. You know, which which at this point is not unusual. I mean, it's we're we're living in this amorphous world, obviously, that's changing so quickly, and 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 you know, there's the the common traditional family construct is shifting and and Viva's really uh, on the front lines of that you know because you know her her mother and I aren't together as a couple and and, she, and you know I'm gay and, and and I have a husband and and she she loves him and she loves me so it's just to sort of frame that a little bit for her uh, the explanation of that in in a very whimsical way and also because I think it's a it's, it's a fascinating um story in a lot of ways how 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 she was um brought about she definitely wanted to. She definitely is meant to be here. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you that emphatically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Contracts were signed. Well, no. I mean, I think I think it's more. You know, you really. What's fascinating with kids, and and I don't think that when parents were in more traditional positions, that that they could maybe uh, grasp this as well as as parents can now, who are now you know have all these choices. Um, they realize how much it's really the kid that that has made the decision to arrive, you know, because once that person is in your life, it really um, fits into where you need to be and what you need to be doing and and how you need to uh, adjust your existence to uh, cater to this new soul. And um, I, th- I think a lot of that was taken for granted when there weren't these other avenues available. And now that there's, you know, all these different types of families and uh, and, and kids are, you know, brought up by all different types of people. It's just the kids know 
you know, they made they made they made this that choice. It's that thing of the the kids choosing the parents as opposed to the parents choosing the kid. I I think that is very uh, powerfully proven <laughs> in this era. <laughs> it, I I have two young kids, and it is incredible how they basically drive the agenda. Yeah, no, they totally at some do. Point. I have amazing faith in in, in young people and in, in children of, of of this in this time, and 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 really feel like. In a lot of ways, sadly, <laughs> that it's though you know though, though my parents' generation, my generation, I don't know what the hell we're doing, but but my parents' generation was so dominant and is now you know with Trump obviously kind of hard to knock out. <laughs> 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 but the but the younger generation, the the, the kids, my daughter and and uh, and so forth, um, they they they're going to figure this out, I think. Mm. I've heard you do a lot of Leonard Cohen songs, yes. and there's a connection to your daughter there. Yes, yes, and he is the grandfather of my daughter. Did you know him in Montreal, or was this- I didn't know him in Montreal at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, I knew him in L.A. Mm-hmm. I didn't know. I mean, I, I met Lorca once, the, the daughter, uh, his daughter, when when I was in Montreal, mm-hmm. very briefly. But then it was really when I came to California that. Yeah. I, that what I, was your relationship with him? Well, you know, we had a really interesting relationship. I mean, I I would in no way pretend uh to be a, a good friend of his i we were we were definitely bound by something i mean there was there was a kind of acceptance he had an acceptance of me that i think was very rare um but not at all open either you know it wasn't um he kind of i don't think he tolerated me necessarily but but he he knew i was going to stick around and he he made some room for me, you know, in his world. And then when things, you know, picked up and later on and we, you know, her, Lorca and I decided to have a child, um, he was, uh, I think he was very happy about that. And uh, sadly, you know, his health declined uh, soon after Viva was born. But they got to spend a lot of time together. You know, they actually kind of all lived together. So, I mean, my fa- my favorite Leonard thing that, that impressed me and that I'll always remember him for is that, you know, when my first opera was uh, was was produced, there was a, a New Yorker um, that came out, New Yorker magazine, and there was a big advertisement for it, for the New York City Opera. And on one page was Prima Donna, and on the other page was La Traviata. Now, Leonard had always been, you know, I think he likes, liked my music. I think he appreciated my talent. I think he respected me greatly, but he wasn't at all effusive or, you know, he never, he didn't come to my shows or anything like anything like that. But when that New Yorker came out and he saw the two, you know, operas, one next to each other, um, he came down and he kind of grabbed me and he said, you know, Rufus, this is really amazing. This is, I am so impressed by that. And I could tell deep down that he was, that he was, that he was really he was impressed and uh, proud of me, you know, <laughs> for mm-hmm. doing that. Because I think it was something that he could have never done, you know, and it was something that he was, it was like a whole other universe that he certainly had a lot of respect for, but that, uh, but that, but that also didn't necessarily, you know, encroach on his territory. <laughs> so, uh, but he was, he was, and, and that was, that was a great comfort to me and a, and a great sort of um, impetus to continue. Yeah. Did he... Uh... Did his songwriting influence yours at all? I, I mean, I, I think his, I don't know if his style, musical style necessarily influenced me too much. Um, I would say, you know, his lyrics are second to none, obviously. And I've often 
hopes that uh, there might be, you know, a glimmer of similarity <laughs> here and there in some of my lines. Um, I, you know, that 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 I, I do think the way I write is completely different. I think he's he's far superior uh, in that department, but. Uh, but I, but I've always kept him as a, as, as a, as a beacon, you know, uh, for, for, in terms of words, mm-hmm. uh, someone to, you know, put, keep in the back of your mind. I do want to talk about one more song. Um, and this is called The Sword of Damocles. Yes. Yes. Tell me about that song. Yeah. Well, it, I've been hanging out quite a bit with Carrie Fisher, <laughs> um, before she died and before she went to London, um, I was at her house and, you know, it was, it was a nutty period. And, and she was on, her, on the phone with her attorney screaming at him, uh, talking about how she felt like the sword of Damocles was over her head. And it kind of, I just, it just resonated that, that, that saying. And that just sort of started uh, rolling around in my, in, in my subconscious. And, uh, and I just started writing this song about, about Damocles. And then... During the writing of it, I realized that um, you know uh, that that's when um, you know Trump won the election. I hadn't finished it yet, um, so it was it was one of these kind of there was an ominous quality, you know, mm-hmm. to this song, and also you know Carrie sadly passed away right before the election, or maybe yeah, it was right, or maybe it was right after, but it was it was around that period, and um, so there was this there was just this dark. Spirit um, roaming uh, that, that I that my you know songwriting instincts were picking up on, and it had to do with Damocles. And then I didn't actually know the story, so then I thought, well, you know, it might be good to actually know what I'm writing about. <laughs> so I googled Damocles and uh, and and learned the story by Cicero, which is actually about you know a king who is being um, courted by by one of his subjects. Uh, Damocles and and Damocles is saying it all oh, must be wonderful to be king and then you know they switch places mystically and 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 Damocles is then the the king and but he notices that there's this sword over his head and 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 the idea is that with you know great power comes great responsibility and also great danger so I so then I finished the song with with having known the actual myth and and also after you know Trump had been elected president and it just sort of all fit sadly <laughs> very well and uh what I'll say about Damocles though about this song is that it's not only and I think this is important to 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 point out is that in the song I for instance at the end of it I say you know I am a tyrant <laughs> meaning that you know, when the sword of Damocles falls, it's on all of us, you know, and it's not really, and it should fall. Um, it needs to happen, but it's going to really devastate everyone. And I, I you know, I, I think we're just preparing for it right now. And, but but we will hopefully prevail. And, as I, and that's when I go to the younger generation and I realize that they're, they do seem ready to, to, to fight. That was Rufus Wainwright in conversation with Bruce Hedlund. Broken Record is produced by Mia Lobel and Jason Gambrell with help from Bruce Hedlund, Chiquita Pascal, Jacob Smith, Julia Barton, Justin Richmond, Jacob Weisberg, and of course, LFA, Rick Rubin. To hear all of the songs featured in today's episode, check out brokenrecordpodcast.com. This show is brought to you by 
Pushkin Industries. I'm Malcolm Gladwell. We, uh, when I was growing up, my father dubbed our garden cart Rufus. So every time I see Rufus Wainwright, I think of the garden cart. <laughs> By the way, Pushkin was the name of our first dog. That's where that comes from. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.